You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast series that covers a broad spectrum of national and international legal issues. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Jim Duffy. Sitting in a sharp suit behind an oversized desk in the Kremlin, glaring down the barrel of a television camera, Vladimir Putin does not come across as a man who worries that he might one day have to explain his actions over the last seven months to a judge or jury. But one of the striking features of the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine was the real-time efforts by lawyers to take to the battlefield, to gather evidence, to document atrocities, to start building the foundation of future efforts to seek justice for the victims of this war. Ingus Kelly is the director of Irish Rule of Law International, and later today he will fly to Kiev to join that effort. And I'm delighted to say that he joins us now from the comparatively safe streets of South London. Ingus, welcome to LawPod UK. Thanks very much, Jim. Nice to be speaking to you. So there's lots to talk about, I guess, in terms of what's happening in Ukraine and what you're going to be doing there. But people especially aspiring human rights lawyers, will no doubt be interested in how you end up at this point. You've run this NGO in Ireland for a few years now. Tell us about that. So, um, yeah, it's nearly three years now since I started working for IRLI. So IRLI, to give you the potted history of the organisation, it is one of um, the phoenixes out of the ashes of the fall of the apartheid system in South Africa in that a number of, of lawyers, both barristers and solicitors in Dublin, had connections with South Africa and they wanted to utilize their skills to help their colleagues in South Africa. And after the fall of the part that they were all commercial lawyers and they got involved in training capacity building with lawyers from historically disadvantaged backgrounds, as I'm sure all of your most, if not all of your listeners are aware that the system in the apartheid system had heavily discredited and undermined the ability of non-white people to act as or to act and engage in their professions properly. So they hadn't received the same level of education and training as white lawyers in South Africa. And therefore, uh, those lawyers felt it was incumbent upon themselves to try and utilize their skills for the betterment of their colleagues in South Africa, who had suffered that prejudice over, over centuries, in essence. And um, so from that, those lawyers set up a program that was supported by the Irish Embassy in Pretoria. And then the organization be, kind of became formalized in 2007. In 2009, it became a company limited by guarantee and a charity. And it was set up under the auspices of the Law Society of Ireland, the Bar of Ireland in Dublin. And then in 2015, the Bar of Northern Ireland and the Law Society of Northern Ireland joined. So it's an all-Ireland organization. So obviously, that's a very important thing of itself that the legal professions on the island are working together on all these items. And we do a lot of work, mainly, but not exclusively in sub-Saharan Africa. We have ongoing projects in Zambia, Tanzania, Malawi, and South Africa. But we've previously also worked in Ethiopia, in Kenya, in Uganda, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo, Myanmar, Vietnam. And we're starting to expand it on the kind of pro bono space, which our colleagues in Britain and Advocates for International Development have been very helpful to us. And they work a lot with barristers and solicitors across Britain, as many of your listeners will know. That's really interesting to, to hear how it was set up and, and how that initial work is now being put into practice in other countries around the world. Um, so, Ingus, we worked together many years ago now when you were representing the family of Baha Musa, the Iraqi hotel worker. And since then, I feel as if every time I get in touch with you, you're in a different far-flung destination um, working on human rights issues. 
Can you just talk us through where that work has taken you both legally and geographically? Yeah, well, I, you know, uh, just to go a little bit back on what I was just talking about, I think the work with, that IRLI doing is in many ways some of the most rewarding work and affecting work in that it's not just working on individual cases or several cases in that it's working, trying to help our colleagues in those countries I mentioned with their systems, but also working on, um, hopefully on systems that are affecting real change. And, you know, we have a team of eight lawyers in Malawi and I have the good fortune to head up our office in Dublin, but they're the ones doing the real hard work at the front line, you know, in the last, if I talk, talk about in the last 12 month period, we've had people who've served over one instance, a guy had served over 11 years without trial in prison in Malawi. And he was freed based on the hard work of, of my colleagues in the team in Malawi. Do a lot of work at t- taking kids out of the criminal justice system. A lot of kids end up in prisons, in adult prisons, and taking them out and giving them the skills to move out, of the, to get out of the criminal justice system and go back to school or to get into a job. Um, you know, women who've been accused of infanticide, who've had a miscarriage or stillborn child, and they've been sent to prison for a period for, you know, three, four, five years and without trial. Um, so that's, you know, as I said this to my colleagues the other day, because I'm often sabbatical to Ukraine, as you've mentioned. And I said, guys, you know, you should be really proud of yourselves because the work you do every day is more than most people get to do in their entire lives. People have different paths. It's not to be, you know, obtuse or unfair to other people. We all have our different paths, but it is to to, to reassure them and just to congratulate them on the amazing hard work they do. For me personally, you know, my journey, I suppose, started. I'm from the west coast of Ireland, from Galway, um, and I went to college in Cork, and then I uh, went off traveling, and I ended up going to New Zealand for four months and staying four years, and uh, as one does, and I qualified. That was the first place I qualified in. The professions are fused there, and um, so one qualifies as a barrister and solicitor. And then because I left, basically, because as I, as I said to friends recently, I left and not because I wanted to go, because I knew if I didn't leave, then I'd never leave. And I went back in 2019 after 13 years away. And I still had the same feeling about the place that I really love it and I miss it. And I wish it was a bit clear, nearer. But then again, it wouldn't be so special if it was so near. But I went to work on the Bamuza case and some other cases that you and I were working together, Jim. And then I went on to Bosnia and I worked at the prosecutor's office on Srebrenica crimes for two and a half years um, which was an amazing experience. It had the mighty conf- configuration of pretty efficient system with some great colleagues in a beautiful place. And it was tough at times. The work was tough and draining, but it was amazingly rewarding. And we did a lot of good work, I hope, and made a lot of good friends and worked a lot of great lawyers from, from Bosnia and from abroad. And then I went to Kosovo, where I was working on war crimes again, but also on organized crime, did a lot of work on uh, organ trafficking cases, on uh, big war crimes cases, but also on migrant trafficking and terrorism and money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. And then I went to, because, you know, in our system in in the jurisdictions of the UK and in Ireland, we have this want to cross over from prosecution to defence, which is seen as very weird in most legal traditions in the world. Um, and this is something when you have to explain to our friends, particularly our friends from North America or the or continental Europe, uh, they look at me blankly. And I can remember several of them really being quite um, challenged and... Uh, None too happy with the fact that I was changing from the prosecutor's office in Kosovo to going work in the defense in Cambodia, where, you know, I had the good fortune to work with John Jones, the late John Jones, who's an amazingly lovely man, QC, and then following his passing with Wayne Jordash, QC. 
And that was, you know, a great pleasure and an interesting place to work under the French system. I won't lie to you, but I found it quite difficult at times because I think the ECCC, the Crimea Rouge Tribunal there where I was working at um, as one of the defence lawyers, had took the worst of both our systems, the common law system, the civil law systems. But it was set up to fail and the UN gets a lot of hassle for that. But in fact, the UN had been the one pushing back for that the system that was set up was not fit for purpose. But in essence, I stayed there a year. I would have gladly stayed longer. I loved the place. But uh, it was very clear that our client was not going to proceed to trial and the investigative judges were making that clear. So I kind of jumped before I was pushed and I went to North Africa and I started working for the European Union uh, on criminal justice issues, trying to help with our Libyan colleagues set up their system or reset up their system to deal with the vagaries of modern life and the post-revolutionary period, which unfortunately is is ongoing because of the conflict that flares up from week to week, unfortunately, in Libya. And then after that, I went working for Global Legal Action Network, an NGO that does a lot of strategic litigation cases, and they still do amazing work. And now back to my IRLI rant. And that's a long uh, soliloquy from me there. So my apologies for that. Well, when you pack all of that into such a a relatively short period of time, I guess it does take a while to explain it. But presumably... Inga, so all of that experience uh, in different political cultures, different legal cultures, helps you to gain trust and indeed credibility with the, the local actors you work with. Well, hopefully, and you know, the thing, you know, I've, I've said this, uh, we, you know, one of the things when we go into meetings with our colleagues in, in Zambia or Malawi or Tanzania or South Africa or other places we may potentially work is, look, we don't know this country as well as you guys. We won't know you this country as well as you guys. Um, because it's impossible for me or any lawyer coming from the island of Ireland to know the culture of Zambia or Malawi or South Africa or Tanzania as well as people from that place. So we go in with the very open arms of not you should do this or you should do this. It's how can we help you? And my firm conviction is that that's the only way to do this work because otherwise you're, you're, th- you're burning money. You're burning money, literally burning money, KLF style in a in a in a bothy in the west coast of Scotland. Because you know, if you don't have local involvement and local engagement and local buy-in, it's dead in the water. And I think that's something that we in rich northern, the rich west, need to realise that we have to be cognizant of the realities that these. Uh, other countries have their own traditions and views and that's not to excuse them not to excuse uh, behaviors that we think are completely abhorrent but it is to say let's be realistic and let's be how we can help change the dial not how we can change the dial but how we can help change the dial and we can only do that through local colleagues and partners so that's really really key i think you're about to leave all of that behind at least for the time being and travel to ukraine as part of the European Union's efforts to help investigate evidence of war crimes. And there are other actors out there. You mentioned Wayne Jordash, who's working, heading up um, global rights compliance and doing incredible work out there. As far as you are able to tell us, as far as you know, what's your work actually likely to involve day to day? Well, you know, hopefully what it's going to involve is most importantly is to assist our Ukrainian colleagues in the investigation and prosecutions of serious crimes. What that will look like, I think, and I hope that that will look like uh, assisting them in in the ways they need, which I, I would think maybe looking at international legal points, looking at investigative techniques, looking at the context of how this was done in, in previous 
iterations of international involvement in, in criminal justice issues, how we can learn from the things we did previously, particularly the mistakes we made. We've made loads of mistakes. Uh, uh, lawyers going to conflict zones have made loads of mistakes. I think the big difference for Ukraine compared to a lot of previous conflicts is one, there's a lot more resources coming in to assist our Ukrainian colleagues. And two, our Ukrainian colleagues are very well skilled and have been dealing with these issues since 2014. This war didn't start in February. This war started in 2014. So our colleagues on the ground in Ukraine have been dealing with these issues. My understanding is that the reality now is that the number of criminal acts is so enormous that this is presenting problems. And how could it not? You know, if you had such a war in any jurisdiction in the world, even the richest jurisdictions in the world, this would cause enormous problems just to reconfigure the setup of your state agency to deal with the crimes. The Irish Department of Foreign Affairs is seconding me to work for the European Union Advisory Mission, EUAM, which is a common security and defence policy mission, as I was working in, in Libya and in, in Kosovo, not seconded by the Irish in Kosovo, but in Libya was. So hopefully we can assist the, the Ukrainians on that, on training capacity building, on research, on assistance, as they see fit. It's their country. Absolutely. So you'll be working on a project that's already well underway, in effect, and, and I know you've been in touch with colleagues who are already out in the field working in Ukraine. What have they described about what it's like and what it's like to try and carry out this work in the environment that they're in, in, in the unique setting that they find themselves a part of? Well, you know, I remember to, I was talking to a colleague, a former colleague last week, who will be a colleague again um, in the next few days. And he said, it's like every other any other city in the world, Angus, until 10 o'clock at night, because then the curfew comes in and you have air raid sirens on occasion. So, you know, in Kiev, I think the realities are very different from where, what would be if you're in Kharkiv or in the Donbass, or down in Kherson, where you're on the front line. And I, the honest answer is I don't know when and if we'll be allowed to go to those places. I do think it would be good if we could, because undoubtedly our Ukrainian colleagues are, and if we're going to go and, and try and um, assist them, then we should be trying to be with them as much as possible. But the honest answer is I don't know the vagaries of that. And I haven't been told that purposely, I, I presume, because of, of the, the delicacy of the topic. So the honest answer is I'm going a little bit blind in that regard. But I think that's always the case in, in situations where you have an ongoing conflict. So I'm hopeful, but I'm also realistic. Obviously, Angus, any lawyer who has had to work in the human rights field for a sustained period will have to process the testimony that they're hearing, the written material, deal with sometimes very upsetting and, and graphic visual material. What you're about to get involved in is, of course, of a whole different order in real time and on the ground, human rights work in a war zone. And we already know from the United Nations and as reported by journalists that there have been the most appalling atrocities carried out in Bucha, in Hostomel, in Borodyanka, in Izium. That's no doubt just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's been going on. How well prepared would you say you are in terms of being able to go about this vital work while maintaining composure, sanity and objectivity? Hopefully well prepared, but you know the proof of the pudding is in the eating, so we'll soon see... I also know that the likelihood is that I would be far from the front line. 
So people say to me, oh, you're very brave to go over there. And I say, I'm not brave. The people who are brave are the guys fighting at the front line. The people who are brave are the poor refugees who are living in Ireland or the UK right now who fled the war. They're brave people. I'm not a brave person. I think that I'm good. I have a big, thick West of Ireland head on me, as your listeners can't see, but Jim can um, and knows. And I think that I'm good at compartmentalizing and moving onwards. That's the technical term. I would just call it thick-headedness, I suppose. But uh, my uh, clinical psychologist friends tell me that's the correct term. So I think I'm pretty decent at that. That's a good thing, and I'm lucky in that regard. So I'm, I'm uh, like, I'm really looking forward to it. I won't lie. But yeah, of course, there'll be difficult things to see and to view and to process. But that's that's where we are. This is the reality of humanity, unfortunately, and that's where we're trying to kind of change the course of humanity to lead to less of these things. Um, personally, I do just as a little add-on that I think is really important here. I think that we're headed for very, very choppy waters because climate change is the big show in the background that anything we talk about in, in the prism of humanity in the next century is going to be so involved with climate change, which is going to drive so much, pro- so many problems for us as a species. And not just our species, the whole who and whatever lives on this planet is going to be affected very detrimentally by what's going, to, going on with our climate emergency. Well, I suspect that our listeners will reach their own quite different assessment of your relative bravery levels angus how realistic is it though from your perspective is it that senior commanders including the most senior commander will ever face justice for what's happening to men women and many children in the country that's you know that's one of the big questions and not the biggest question i suppose obviously first off one has to be realistic and say in the short term that's highly unlikely uh, is it completely unforeseeable? Look, you know, people use the word never. And a, a good friend of mine, she used to say, never is a very long time. Never is a very long time. And it's not the same situation. Some people say, oh, Milosevic, you know, was eventually toppled. Russia is a very different country to Serbia, a much bigger country. Putin is backed by massive oligarchs who have a vested interest in his continuation. It's not just about Putin or his or his acolytes. It's also a wider group who benefited from his rule over over a long period of time, you know. But anything is possible. And what's certain is if you want to do it, if you want to take cases against Putin and his acolytes, then you're going to need to compile the evidence in the best possible fashion as soon as possible. And that's been one of the problems. I was listening to Kate Gibson, a very experienced international criminal lawyer, who many of you know from Australia, and she was speaking about how, you know, one of the problems we faced in the tribunals, and I can say this was the case also in the hybrid courts, was that the accumulation and documenting of evidence was flawed. And this wasn't due to the fault of anyone on the ground at the time during the wars in the Balkans, but it was just due to the the vagaries of the situation, the realities, and we have our time and ability to address that. Um, so let's hope we can do that and collate that evidence in the, in the best possible fashion. That's also important for if you want to have a real criminal trials that respect the rule of law, that respect lady justice and her blindfold, um, because everyone deserves a fair trial. You know, that's the reality. So we want to do the best processes or collate the best evidence we can to put in place the best processes so that we can have the best trials that comply with the highest standards. So we'll see. I do think, you know, there's rumors that there's been several Russian soldiers captured, obviously some are on trial, but also that there's been a senior commander captured in the last few days. I do think others were highly likely to be captured. And who knows what may happen in the future in Russia? And who knows what may happen if a new government comes into power in Russia and decides that Putin and his acolytes, you know, have done the Russian state and the Russian people a great disservice. Well, I mentioned aspiring human rights lawyers at the start of the podcast and no doubt even the most hardened, jaded, long-in-the-tooth legal professional will, will be listening to this and will be 
totally inspired and blown away by what you've been describing and what you're about to undertake. Ingus, all the best. Stay as safe as you possibly can and it would be great to pick up on LawPod UK when you're back. Thanks a lot, Jim. Much appreciated. This episode of LawPod UK was presented by Jim Duffy and produced by the Barristers at One Crown Office Row.